Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Consulting with a Cause. Firstly, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognise the continuing connection to the land, water and community. We are on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and to their elders past and present. Nicola is the Research Director at SANE Australia's Anne Davison Research Collaborative. Her research focuses on population monitoring and interventions to improve population mental health and mental health literacy, as well as reducing stigma and discrimination. Additionally, Nicola is the Principal Research Fellow and Deputy Director of the Centre of Mental Health at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Welcome to the podcast, Nicola, and thank you for joining us today. No problem. It's a pleasure. Awesome. The topic of today's episode is mental health. Um, I think it is a topic that concerns everybody and it is a topic that people should speak more about. Um, and that is the goal of today's episode. So I guess to start off, Nicola, could you just please tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to kind of conduct research in this area? Sure. So um, as you said, I'm a researcher in the Centre for Mental Health and also SANE's um, research director for their Anne Deverson Research Collaborative. So. A lot of my work is in population mental health, so that's not clinical research, that's work with, so not people who are actually unwell, but with the general population. And a lot of it is trying to change knowledge and attitudes, so people will know more about how to get help if they're unwell, um, and they're less likely to judge or reject other people who might have symptoms or diagnosis. So it's really around increasing that community understanding. And I think that's something everyone can relate to, you know, particularly with common mental health problems like depression and anxiety. A lot of people listening to this podcast will either have experienced it themselves or will know someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is something that touches touches us all. And um, I think when you work as a researcher, you really, at the end of the day, you kind of get up in the morning every day because you think you want to make a small contribution, you know, whatever contribution you can make to yeah, making people's lives better. And because mental health is so prevalent, you do feel that, you know, you're going to do them as much as you can to contribute to that. Yeah, absolutely. And so as a researcher, what what does your work kind of look like on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So... Um, When you're a population health researcher, you do sort of, I mean, I do a combination. We do lots of survey work um, and some qualitative research. So that's really trying to understand the drivers of of a phenomenon. So you might try and collect data on that. So you might, for example, do a survey that collects data on how many people in the country would under, would recognise what depression symptoms are and then what they might believe about where they should go for help. So that's kind of the measuring of it. Mm-hmm. And then you also, of course, want to do things that bring about change. So that's interventions, and that might be developing them and trialling them. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the things I do. And I also, you know, I'm a researcher, so I spend a lot of time writing grants, um, many of which I don't get, because yeah. that is the life of a researcher. But yeah. um, you do you do get one every now and then, yeah. and then you can, you know, go to work on managing that. So right. that's, that's great. And I work with fantastic people and collaborators, and um, that that is probably the major upside of the job. You get to work with really good, committed, smart, capable, energetic people. That's fantastic. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. The kind of catalyst for today's episode was um, this article in 2017 released by Origin called Under the Radar, mm-hmm. the Mental Health of Australian University Students. Um, really awesome read. Um, but So a little bit of info about Origin. Origin is the National Centre of Excellence in Youth Mental Health 
And in the in that report, they actually referenced some of your research. Um, they show that the mental health of university students has been largely ignored in Australia. And a sobering statistic mentioned in the report is that almost a quarter of a million Australian university students are likely to experience mental ill health during any one year at university. And additionally, one in four young people experience mental ill health. Um, oh, and for our listeners, if you guys would like to learn more about this article, there will be a link in the episode description. So in the first section of the Origin report, a number of students, student respondents talked about mental health-related stigma. Could you brief, briefly describe what stigma in mental health is and how it contributes to the mental health crisis? Sure. So it's an, it's an old word that comes from a, a Greek word from a, from a brand or a tattoo, and slaves or outcasts were marked by that tattoo. And so over the centuries, that's gradually evolved. So it's one one definition, it's kind of like a spoiled identity. Mm. So there's this idea that if someone has a mental health problem, they become a kind of other. And um, they might be rejected, they might be excluded, they might be actively discriminated against. So there is people do report those experiences. And there's a range of obviously adverse consequences for that you know if you're socially excluded or you're economically excluded because you can't get a job um, that can have really big impacts on on the whole of your life Uh, so that's kind of one of the reasons we care about that and do you think there's been a reduction in stigma, particularly when comparing it to other generations where discussing mental health was considered taboo? Sure. I think we have definitely seen changes and we have you know, evidence for that. So what we've been quite... People often think about stigma as a, as a one thing, but mm. it's actually sort of multidimensional. So probably what we've done is made quite good progress in reducing the idea that depression, for example, is something that you can snap out of. You just need to get out more. You just need to pull yourself together. You know, we've done quite a good job in shifting those attitudes. But another aspect of stigma probably relates to a kind of dangerousness idea, um, particularly with people with more complex mental health conditions, might be like schizophrenia. We really haven't done a very good job on shifting those attitudes. And actually, they may have even got it. We've got some evidence that they may have even got a bit worse. So it's a bit of a mixed picture, definitely some progress and still some work to do. Okay, sure. Um, So one study that was quoted in the Origin report found that perceived stigma was higher in males, international students, students with lower socioeconomic backgrounds and students with current mental health problems. Why, in your opinion, is there a gender disparity in perceived stigma surrounding mental health? So when you do surveys of mental health literacy and stigma, you do often find that men, young men, men generally have lower levels of mental health literacy. Um, Some of that might be around some ideas around traditional masculinity and, you know, that you need to be stoic and you can't really seek help. And um, so some of it might be around that. And, you know, being a bit gender stereotyping, but the data do bear it out, is that women might be likely to want to help or be supportive or talk about emotional stuff. So those things can come into play. And You know, going back a bit to the dangerousness idea, if you think about what might be driving that, you know, we all hear reports of, you know, mass shootings in the US and they're quite pervasive, aren't they? They're almost always young men. So, you know, you can think about what might be driving that on both of both sides there. Right, that's really interesting that you talk about this dangerousness thing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. 
Well, I think what we do know is that some of the drivers of, of stigma, so our attitudes generally are, you can have several drivers of that, right? You can have personal experience, so, or media. So with, say, depression and anxiety, because they're so common, you're much more likely to personally actually know someone mm -hmm. who's had one of those diagnoses. So you're not so reliant on stereotypes. You're more able to kind of grasp the complexity of what that means. Whereas for something like, say, schizophrenia, because it's much, much less common, thankfully, it's um, you're less likely to know someone, so you're more relying on stereotypes. Mm. So where might you get your stereotypical beliefs from? Well, one of the sources could be the media. Um, and history, and it could be movies, and it could be novels. And so that's... And if you think about, you know, mass shootings where people you know, US politician might get up and say it's not the guns, it's the mental health yeah. crisis. You know, all these kind of things filter in to people's attitudes. So I think that's one of the reasons. Actually, I, I really agree with the media point because I think you know, there's, a, there's a lot of movies in Hollywood where, sure. you know, they, they would portray someone with mental health as like this really crazy kind of like psychotic person. But um, yeah, that's definitely not helping the cause, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so kind of circling back onto the kind of um, issue with men and uh, masculine norms. Mm. So I was wondering if there's like ways you can address this issue both on a personal and maybe at, like a government or societal level. Sure. So, um, for example, I work on a really large suicide prevention project led, led by Jane Perkis, fantastic researcher who's the head of our centre. So based on the fact that, you know, 75%, for example, of completed suicides are men, um, so if you can do something about that, you perhaps might have an impact. So that project kind of has two ways of trying to address that. So it's there's around implementing interventions that change norms and beliefs in the population. And then, because what you want to do is, you know, if somebody is in a crisis or is unwell, you want them to seek help. Mm -hmm. But then when you do get them to seek help, they need to... They need to they need the help to be appropriate. So, you know, the, the sort of a cliched example is a man might go to the GP to seek help and all the waiting room is full of women and New Idea magazine, if that even still exists, I'm not sure. Um, but do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, And then a, maybe a GP is sort of not really trained to think about um, the way men might talk about mental health. And some, of course, are fantastic, but others just, you know, they're busy and they have a lot of demands. They might yeah. need more, you know, help with that. So it's around kind of trying to shift some of those norms around talking mm -hmm. about mental health and suicide and then people do get help or go for help that it needs to be the right kind of help with people who kind of understand how to deal with some of those issues right. so that's a big ask mm -hmm. um but it's uh you know there's a lot of work going on in that area some fantastic research being done in that yeah. area is that the kind of the goal of the the project that's the overall goal of that of the boy project it's called right yeah. the boy project yeah. yeah awesome yeah um circling back to the report just a little bit um another group that was of high risk of mental distress were international students mm. and at the university of melbourne 44 percent of the student population actually consists of 
you know, yeah. international students. Yeah. So why do you think there's such a big blind spot when it comes to international students? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I've been involved in another piece of work more recently on mental health of students, including international, and working with um, Lena Sanchi and Melissa Russell. So Lena Sanchi in the University in the Department of General Practice and mm. Melissa in a School of Population and Global Health. And um, they did a survey of mental health and then followed them up during COVID. And... You know, we've had a student looking at some of the data on acculturative stress, for example. So it looks like students who um, find that, you know, find that making that change, coming from a really different culture and being a student, if you have that, if you find that stressful and you have quite low social support, so Mm. maybe you're struggling to just find your people, you know, make friends and do all that, then that combination can be quite bad for your mental health. Mm. And I think there's a lot of obviously a lot of pressures on international students you know they're coming from different country there's a lot to get your head around you know there might be pressure for your families obviously probably made sacrifices and you know financial to get you here and like I think there's a lot of things that um, we can do and the university certainly does recognize this as an issue um, and that's before you even start to talk about COVID with as the well-known you know obviously there was a lot of um young Asian students reporting at the beginning of the pandemic, reporting, you know, being uh, abused and racially vilified around that, which is obviously, you know, completely unacceptable. And then support for financial support wasn't there and the university tried to do as much as they could with that. But so those things absolutely compounded distress, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely agree. I mean, not to the same extent, but like moving from interstate, that lack of support network you, know, you don't know anyone. No. It can be pretty intense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess moving forward, do you think universities have an ethical responsibility to provide mental health support and education to students? And how do you think the university can better support this demographic? Yeah, they definitely that? do. And they definitely recognise that as well. Mm-hmm. So there's... Um, you know, there's obviously the counselling service and the health service. And they also do things like um, mental health first aid training. So that's a bit like that idea of physical first aid. Teachers lay people to give that kind of initial support if you're worried about someone so they can get into professional help. And there's, a you know, quite a lot of other initiatives as well going on and certainly more work in that area. Um, and, you know, definitely an ethical responsibility, no, no doubt about that, which I think they absolutely recognize so yeah so I think more um I guess you know I'm a researcher so I always think okay what what did the data say like what what can we bring to bear on the problem and so that finding that I just talked about about if you're a bit more stressed you know making that those cultural changes and don't have social support that might be a group of students that might need particular more particular support Mm. so a bit of thinking through okay who are the students that we might best support I think you want to do some things to support everybody but then there might be particular groups of students that you might say look you know you 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 might need a little bit extra support yeah yeah um and in the article something that kind of stood out was this kind of lack of research in the area of mental health um especially in like tertiary and higher education Mm. um despite that though the government actually heavily supports um like the issue of mental health in like lower levels of education so why do you think this kind of just drops off once you get to this tertiary level. Um, does it drop off? I I wonder if it drops off because there are supports. Mm-hmm. I think there's something in that transition period, you know, so you're leaving school, which is a, of course, doesn't suit everybody and there's people, you know, who have issues. But 
that's a that's a life stage transition that mm. you know some people are going to manage better than others and i think that brings a different set of challenges to the challenges that you might encounter at school and i think the university you know certainly is doing things but again there's always room for thinking about how things can be done better mm-hmm. um and that probably that help with that transition is probably might be one of those areas mm. and the other thing i would say about you know mental health in university students part of it is that that's just the age which is high prevalence like so 75 percent of mental health problems start before the age of 24 right. so that's the age people are in in university Sometimes people think, well, the mental health of students is worse, but actually probably there's a group that's probably mental health is or even greater concern. Those those, those we call not in education, um, right. employment or training. They often have poor mental health. Students who um, might be very financially stressed, they're at definitely higher risk as well. You know, you've got to... You're worried about money. You got to maybe you're working a lot and you're managing with a study. Though that's a group of students who again probably need even more support just because that's a lot to manage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think again, particular groups of students might be, um, you know, needing more support, more at risk. Mm. Yeah. What What do you think it is the case that kind of like the prevalence of mental health happens in this kind of like age range? So it's probably a combination of, uh, you know that transition that yep. people go through young people go through in puberty and you know and the the problems from that it's a com- it's going to be some kind of interaction between all those you know hormonal changes mm-hmm. and the environments people are in so if you're kind of innately you know at risk uh, which in that period all those changes might mean you are and your environment is not supportive mm-hmm. you know i think that's something that we're probably not paying enough attention to and you know you probably comment more more than this me because I'm older, but you know things like concerns about climate change, student debt, mm-hmm. you know, increasing house prices. So looking and okay, well, how am I gonna make my way in the world here? Um, social media feeding you images of people's perfect lives, yeah. although I think a lot of people understand that's not people's lives aren't perfect, but it still gets in on some yeah. level. Um, are the employment opportunities there that you hoped would be? I think these things are all really challenging for young people and, you know, providing more services while really important isn't going to address all that stuff. And I think we need to pay attention to that and that more upstream prevention end. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess everything just starts to get a little bit more serious once you leave high school. Also true, right? Yeah. And you've got to think, you know, when you're in school, you sort of know what you're doing. But that transition, thinking about where's my place in the world, yeah. who am I, what am I going to do, what are the opportunities, um, those things, are, you know, come to the fore, which yeah. is, you know, fantastic in many ways because it's opportunity, but can be challenging as well. And yeah, I think definitely. supporting people to get through that and to come out the other side with the, you know confidence to make the lives they want is really important mm-hmm. and the skills and capacities to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess talking about early intervention, in the article it reviewed and outlined four main interventions that universities can try to implement to try to promote mental health issues. Um, one of the four interventions was awareness raising, which was referenced yeah. by Professor Raverley. It described awareness raising as a multifaceted intervention involving various forms of media. Could you please explain a little bit more about awareness raising and what forms were most effective? Sure. So I don't think you want to just say that you can just do awareness raising Mm -hmm. and then leave it there. Um, But certainly 
that can be a really a range of things depending on who you're trying to target. So of course there's media activities, you know, that Beyond Blue, for example, do, and mm-hmm. you know various other organisations. Movember, for example, do great work in men's mental health. Um, and you can also do target things more specifically. So, um, you know, one of I had, was once involved in a project um, at, actually at a university. It was Victoria University, and one of the things we did was post out some material to people, some booklets with um, information about treatment for depression and anxiety and no one gets anything in the mail anymore so when we asked people what they remembered about the work we did they remembered that so you know just sometimes thinking a bit laterally and going okay how are we gonna reach people I mean podcasts again that's I'm a huge podcast fan no you know that's that's something that's exploded in popularity in the last few years so talking about mental health on podcasts is good awareness raising Um, so just all those kind of things really Yeah. 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 I mean, another interesting intervention that was outlined was this thing called social and video-based contact. Yeah. Um, I was curious whether you had any thoughts on that. I do. So that that comes out of the literature that shows that that's the stigma literature, actually. Mm-hmm. So it shows that people who know someone with a mental health problem tend to have lower stigmatizing attitudes. And I kind of talked a bit about that before yeah. where you then move beyond the stereotypes. So one of the interventions that now is commonly done is to um, incorporate that into the education. So you might have a an hour, you know, session in a school or something where you give people some education about mental health, and then you might have a person with lived experience come along and talk about that experience. Um, and it's done best, obviously, if there's some matching to the target. So mm-hmm. you know, if you're giving a talk to a load of eighteen-year-olds, you probably don't want someone 60 years old talking about so you you want to kind of have a bit more relation and also you kind of want those stories to be positive Mm -hmm. so you don't want to you know go in with you know having had difficult times and not come through them Mm -hmm. so that's what that's based about and that can be video as well so sometimes it can be in person but you can also have video stories so that's a common way to try and shift people's attitudes about what it's like to have a mental health problem and um yeah what you you know, not to exclude people or to not see it as a life sentence, you know, to see it as something that can be resolved and if you get the right help and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel mm. like um, hearing, like, lived personal experiences is really important. Incredibly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also think, like, technolo- we can really harness technology. Like, um, totally. I feel like a lot of times seeking support, sometimes maybe, you know, maybe going to a counsellor and, like, being in person could be a lot sometimes. And I yeah, feel like totally. technology can really allow us to, like, know use we can be anonymous and we can maybe we just needed to chat with somebody yeah yeah so i think that's that's one area we could really yeah really harness and certainly digital mental health services have again mm. expanded hugely in popularity and australia is you know pretty it's kind of really a leader in that work actually there's lots of people doing fantastic work in that area including at origin mm. Um, so the article concluded with eight recommendations for governments and the universities to consider. Mm. One of the recommendations that stood out was to harness the capital within. So it's now been five years since the population of the Origin report was released. Has there been any significant policy cha- changes since its publication? Um, I think uh, I would say yes. And also because, of course, COVID has intervened in that time, yeah. which has changed a lot of things, particularly for universities um, and not least in regard to international students. So I would say they have, and there's certainly quite a lot of work going on in the university to think about how better to do that. Um, but 
that's always a work in progress. You know, that's that's for sure. Yeah. yeah.